CBC Messenger. This is Season 2, Episode 2 of Real Science, Real Bible, Real History, and Real World. My name is Steve Hall, and I'm here with my wife, Jennifer, and we are so glad that you are with us today. And boy, do we have something to share with you today when we talk about real science and real Bible and real history and real world. We have something very real that we want to share with you uh, from the biblical accounts. So before we get into our main topic, Jennifer, give us the bullet points for this podcast episode. Okay, September 2023. Here we go. Our rundown for today's podcast is, first of all, the anticipated topic of manna in the wilderness, part one. Then uh, we will be discussing quite a bit to do with the manna discovery. Then we will move into a quick research update uh, about the Red Sea crossing and a new article that has come out about that from Dr. Ardsma. We then have a section today called In the News. We are going to talk about some churches having movie-themed church services over the summer. Then we have a section on the anti-aging vitamins, as we normally do, sharing some recent brief testimonials. Helen's View this month will be talking about some interesting improvements that have happened to the uh, research and business facility there at Ardsma Research and Publishing. And that's it. That's the rundown. So moving right into our featured topic, manna in the wilderness. Last month in our podcast, Dr. Ardsma stated, God is doing something unusual in our time. Aslan is on the move at present. Things are happening. And uh, maybe you have sensed this in your own life as well. Let me mention, if you didn't listen to last month's podcast, go back and listen to that where we had an interview with Dr. Gerald Ardsma and fascinating topics there. So make sure you listen to that. This month, we discuss one of the most recent unusual things that God has done through the research here at Arzma Research and Publishing and the Biblical Chronologist. He has revealed something that we can now hold in our hands, something that we can see and touch and even taste and understand, something that takes us back over 4,000 years ago to a time when a vast people group set out to follow God, the true and living God, and found themselves struggling to survive in the wilderness. So this month, we are going to share what has probably been, Jen, our most anticipated topic to date, the topic of manna. God has graciously given us yet another piece of evidence to demonstrate the historicity of the ancient Old Testament and the truth of his word. We feel so privileged to be the first ones to communicate these research findings uh, to our podcast audience. You're the first audience to receive it. And, you know, sometimes as we walk by faith and we follow after God, uh, he knows our frailties and he knows we need something we can just hold in our hand. And I think of Noah being on the ark And he had been through a terrifying time with his family. The entire world around them had vanished while they were enclosed in this boat for months. They did not know what was going to happen. When the waters receded, they would have been scared to death to get off of the ark. 
And what did God give to Noah? God gave him something he could hold in his hand, just a simple olive branch brought to him by a dove. And that small thing that Noah would have held and looked at would have said so much to him. I'm still at work, Noah. There is going to be life. Life is going on outside of the ark. And you and your family uh, have a future ahead of you. I think that's sort of what's happening with the manna that God has given us. Uh, Something we can just see and know that he is at work in a very real way. Sometimes during our work here, we get on Twitter. We have a Twitter account for the BC Messenger. And it's, it's very easy to bump into atheists and unbelievers there, of course. And some will have a very belligerent attitude on Twitter. Something, you know, like this. If your God is real, why doesn't he show himself to me? I'll wait. Those right. kind of comments. You hear right. it all the time. And yet, God is showing himself to us, sometimes in the most unusual ways all around us. Right. Sometimes most unusual ways, sometimes in the most normal ways. We were right. out looking at a, at some flowers outside of our house the other day. You, you look closely, right? You, you look closely at some of these things that are just fascinating, like a flower petal and the design and the structure, God revealing himself. Yes, in the most unusual ways, sometimes the most normal. Right. Sometimes the yeah. most ordinary ways in the beauty of the world we're in. Right. So, but yes, and then at times through history, God reveals himself in an unusual way. Uh, I grew up a Christian. I trusted, I have trusted the Bible. I've trusted the Lord all my life. But, you know, in our work that we're doing here, it is an eye opener to the many people that are out there who, well, first they weren't as privileged as I was to have a Christian upbringing. Right. Um, some of them, uh, some of them did. And, but yet, for whatever reason, they've lost their faith in the truth of the Bible and in God. And some have just never, they never have believed. They they say, why should I choose your Bible over their book? Why should I choose your God and your Redeemer over their, uh, their answer? So we really do have a privilege today to be able to share with, with you and with others this real world thing <laughs> that we can hold before you and say, look, this is set apart. This is different. This is showing us something unusual of God and of his word and of the reality of it. You know, I remember going back in my mind about a year and a half ago, uh, back February 2022, we were having a we were having a blizzard, really, here in central Illinois, and you were being dropped off back at the house by your dad, by Dr. Arzma, some unusual circumstances, and you were out late, and because of the storm, he was bringing you back in, in the truck or whatever. Right. And and you came in the door, and, and it was quite late at night, and um, I remember you looking at me and you saying, guess what dad just told me? And I remember standing there thinking, what? And this is when you first told me and we first found out that he had discovered, or he believed he had discovered, what manna actually was. And I remember standing there, I mean, here we are, it's almost one o'clock in the morning in the middle of a blizzard, 
uh, you had just gotten in. I was a little worried about you. And you're telling me your dad yeah. has just discovered what manna is. We just, and, we just, <laughs> we just sat there in the living room and we just looked at each other. I mean, we're used to, right. you know, vitamins and biblical research and chronology and various topics, but uh, manna? So we didn't know where, where this was all going to lead. That was the first we heard of it was on that late, that snowy night. And then we, several months later, uh, after he had completed the research project with writing the book and everything, we were able to first introduce this to our podcast audience. And so here's what we said, December yeah. of 2022. So I'm going to go ahead and play um, a little portion of that podcast, and uh, then we'll come back. Here's what we said. What a fascinating story it is. I mean, God even fed these people. Yeah. Hey, here comes our yeah. glimpse of the upcoming uh, research that we are just chomping at the bit to be able to report to you. But uh, we have had reports from Dr. Ardsma on manna. Manna. What is that? What is it? What is it? That's what <laughs> That's manna what means. the Israelites said. What is it? Well, and let um, me just say you want to stay tuned to our podcast. We can't give too much information away yet. But manna, it was a real thing. It was a real thing. And in the real God world. did it miraculously for his people, but it was a food. And they lived off of it for decades there in the wilderness. And how did that come about? We are hoping to be able to very soon be able to give you some fascinating details about yes. manna. Right. And so, <laughs> I love hearing that. And that was, again, how long ago was that? That was uh, December of last year. Of last year, and we have been chomping at the bit. We, we've we been wanting to get this information out uh, since then, and we thought it was going to be quicker than it was. That's life, right? Yes, and, that's how um, it goes, especially in, in scientific research. Yes. Things, uh, roadblocks, delays pop up, but uh, finally the time has come. And here we are, our featured topic for the day, manna in the wilderness, and probably this is going to be part one. Um, I don't think we're going to get through all of the information we have today in one podcast. Is the biblical account of manna mythological or is it historical? Many scholars today would answer, well, it's just a myth. I mean, we everybody knows that this story of manna is just a myth. Well, by the end of this podcast, we hope to have clearly communicated what the physical substance of manna is how you can view it, handle it, taste it for yourself, with these millions of ancient Israelites added to their diet in the desert for 40 years, ended up being for 40 years. A brand new book by Dr. Ardsma shows the manna account to be simply historical. And you, the podcast audience listening to this, are the very first to hear about all of it. I'm holding in my hand uh, our brand new featured book, Bread from Heaven, the Mana Mystery Solved, and it's now available for purchase yes. along with a sample packet of mana. And I want our podcast listeners to know that we are running a special discounted price on this brand new book and sample packet of the mana just for the first week after this podcast goes out. So we will give you all the details on that a little bit later, or you can check your show notes or your email that uh, came with the podcast and you'll get the purchase link there. But it's a great time for you 
to uh, take advantage of the sale price and this uh, cutting-edge, exciting Bible science research. Um, there are two biblical accounts of manna. Yes. We have Exodus 16. The entire chapter, I believe, is dedicated to describing the occurrence, the first occurrence of the manna. And then there's a little bit more information in uh, Numbers chapter 11. In these chapters, we are given quite a bit of information about the manna. Yes. Um, physical properties of it, what it did under different circumstances, what it looked like, how it tasted. And, you know, in there, you have a perfect set of data for a scientist to work with. Right. Observations right there about a physical substance. And that's what's happened. Dr. Arzma has asked the question, what was this substance? How was it produced as a chemist, as a, as a research scientist? Here's a big question. And I'm sure if you know the story, you've been thinking this already. How in the world was it absent on the Sabbath? How can you explain that? I used to uh, love that part of the story. I still love that part. Right. But I remember as a girl, you know, thinking what an amazing God that he would provide he that six nights of the week, but not the seventh night when they were supposed to rest or right. the seventh morning when they were supposed to be having Sabbath. Right. And that would blow my mind. It still blows my mind. But now we have an inside view. It's and just an amazing. It's yes. coming to light in our discussion here bringing out this brand new research to show these answers. So I'm going to take the book right now. Uh, Dr. Arzma has put it in the book, the accounts, right out of the scripture. And I'm going to read this. Let's just take a minute. You remember the story. You Maybe you haven't read it right out of the Bible in a while. So that's what we want to do is just read to you uh, right from the scripture, Exodus chapter, where is it? 16. 16. And then that short passage in Numbers. So here we go. And again, this is important. We want you to hear for yourself right here on the podcast the exact explanation that God has given to us in this record And listen in just to all the details that are given Correct. and the experience of these Israelite people. Exodus chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation, the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel 
that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the hoarfrost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until the morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omerful of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. So that's the account in Exodus chapter 16. And I will read the short account in Numbers where we get a few additional details. Numbers uh, chapter 11, verses 4 through 9. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? 
We remember the fish, which we used to eat free in Egypt, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. The people would go out about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. It's an amazing account. We're the very first ones to really understand anything about what truly manna was. Right. A lot of people have attempted to explain it in the past. Right. Uh, if you look it up on Wikipedia, you will read about insect secretions <laughs> or a plant producing some kind of uh, juicy, sticky substance. There's um, mystical ideas out there of, again, angels literally raining bread, angel food. Angel food cake. <laughs> well, sometimes um, we could get that impression. One of our sons told us that um, some years ago in Sunday school, his Sunday school teacher brought in vanilla wafers to illustrate the manna for her Sunday school class. She wasn't saying that's what manna was, but she was trying to let the children, you know, experience the story. So we can. We can get a picture in our mind that they went up and picked up just this heavenly pieces bread. of bread that just right. was, you know, morsels that melted in your mouth and filled you up. And it was just a glorious experience day after day. But actually, the observational data from these passages does not say anything like that. This was not a finished food product in any right. way. On page 29 of our brand new book, we have a nice table that Dr. Ardsma compiled of all of the observations from these two chapters. And none of the explanations of manna that have ever been put forth about insects and trees and plants and those types of things have ever satisfied barely even one of these physical observations of manna. But now we have an explanation that satisfies every single one. You know, we're a privileged audience today. Mm -hmm. You know? We are getting the conclusion of the matter. Of course, after thousands of years, what is it is what the Israelites asked. But we didn't have to spend a year in the research lab. Dr. Ardsman did. He set out to solve the mystery. And now the mystery is solved. And as we give you these conclusions today, just remember this didn't happen overnight. Although right. the manna did appear overnight. <laughs> Uh, and there were some many overnight lab runs that were being done to experiment with different uh, things with the manna. Well, you know, here's a thought, too. Literally, we're the first people in the world to understand this. Even the Israelites didn't know, I know. what they were getting. They, they knew it was from God. God had led in all of this, but they didn't know what this substance was. Right. They, and, they had never seen it before. Right. So if it had been secreted by an insect, they probably wouldn't have said, what is this? What is it? They would have said, oh, this comes from these insects. Right. So that's just an example of how poor other explanations have been. Right. Yeah. So we're very blessed. We're on the receiving end today. We're going to give you um, some of the explanation here. But when you read this book, and we do hope you'll get the book, you will understand more of how the manna discovery came about, the path that Dr. Ardsma trekked to get to the bottom of the mystery. 
there's pictures in this book. There are some illustrations, um, lots of chemistry. Lots if, of chemistry in the book. <laughs> if you're a chemistry buff, you'll love it. If you're not, you may just want to kind of, you know, scan some of those sections. But overall, it's not a very long book at all. It's, it's not, not a difficult read at all. Uh, but that's where you'll get the the, the most uh, information on And the photos the and illustrations are going to help you see manna in a light that you never have before. Right. So before we explain the basics of manna, we've got to understand, Jennifer, how the Israelite encampments were arranged. Let's get into this now. Okay. What is this manna? How did it come about? Well, we have to first understand the picture, the big picture of what is happening here in this story. We need to paint a picture of the encampments because understanding the encampments sets the foundation for understanding the manna. And are you going to tell me, Jennifer, that you're even going to be able to tell us, or we're going to be able to tell this audience, how come this stuff was supplied every day of the week, but not on weekends? Yes. We're going to be able to tell them that. Yes, we are. Explain that. It's coming up very soon. We need to hurry up. And it has to do with the Israelite encampments somehow. Yes, and all sure these does. people. Okay. All right. So we, we go. got to get the picture in our mind. We've got to picture 600,000 tents. The Bible records 600,000 men coming out of Egypt. So if every man had his own tent because he had his own house, presumably his own household, then um, that's 600,000 tents. The numbers of people, of course, we've talked about well over 2 million with women and children. Then we have the animals. These were pastoral people. Uh, They came out of Egypt with their sheep, their cattle, and they would have had millions. So you've got to picture in your mind a vast tent city, probably five, close to five miles per side. This is based on the archaeology that's been done at these sites and then the numbers the Bible is giving us. And, you know, we we heard somebody recently saying the numbers given in Exodus for the amount of people and stuff are hyperbole, hyperbolic. You know, this is just the Bible kind of overinflating the um the statements here. But I'll tell you what, when you when you get into the science, you realize it's not hyperbole, it's not at, hyperbole all. at all. These are these are real numbers. Right. So they had millions of animals. Um, we have a beautiful illustration on page 33 of the book that my sister-in-law yeah. painted, um, which really does help get in your mind this vast plain and the tent city. And then where were the animals? Were they all just at everybody's little Wandering tent? Around the place. Yeah, having free yeah. reign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, two, three million people. I mean, vast herds. Uh, it, it's hard for us to imagine this picture is good in the book because the picture's worth a thousand words, right? And it kind of just gives you the, a little bit of that view of the the, the massive expanse uh, it would have taken to, to have all of these animals around all of these people. Right. So the animals were kept on the outskirts of the encampment. And this is absolutely vital to understand. Archaeology We know this from archaeology and we know it from common sense. Um, The animals would have served many purposes as they were brought in from the pasture and placed around the entire outskirts of the camp every evening. Right. There's a section in the book here. I'm just going to read this. Archaeology teaches us that the Israelites' herds were kept on the outskirts of the camp at night. Israelite camps no doubt settled into an optimal arrangement after the first few encampments as they were getting organized and figuring out how to best do this. 
again, reading from the book, I picture a sea of varied tents surrounded by a vast stockyard each night. There would have been several advantages to this arrangement. He's saying to having the animals all around the outside of the camp. It would have made a surprise attack on the camp more or less impossible. For example, no enemy's going to get through millions of sheep and cattle without causing quite a stir. The dung produced by the livestock would, when dry, have provided a natural fuel for the Israelite cooking fires, which, you know, we don't think about that. But, I mean, how would they have kindled fires if they were in a wilderness? Campfire fuel being otherwise difficult to procure for such a large population in a desert environment. So now that we have a mental picture of uh, these encampments and these tent cities, Here we go with the basics of manna. You want to know what was happening. We have spent a while setting the stage. So here we go. God's miraculous provision of manna happened because of two main factors. Right. The first factor is the vast herds of cattle and sheep that we've already mentioned. These flocks and these herds created a moisture-laden stockyard atmosphere in the Israelite camps every night. You cannot have manna, according to Dr. Arzma and according to his research, you cannot have manna without these vast numbers of animals. What You say, well, how is that? Why? These animals provided into the air, into, the, into this stockyard atmosphere, water vapor, ammonia gas, acetic acid vapor, propionic acid vapor, and many other uh, gases and vapors into this atmosphere. I'm sure many of our listeners have spent time in a stockyard atmosphere. Um, I've been through a few farms in my life. That's probably the closest I've gotten to it. But as soon as you enter the stockyard, you're going to be smelling different smells. The um, ambient air in those situations is just uh, not the same that you smell in your kitchen or uh, that you breathe when you walk down the city street. These animals emit different gases and vapors that are changing the atmospheric conditions in the air. And with these kind of millions of animals, it truly would have created its own atmosphere there in these encampments. And in the air, you have some uh, if you will, ingredients right. that are going to help create the manna. I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia in the hills, and uh, you know they have the farms there with the cows and the and we used to call it country country air. You smell it <laughs> with the farmers manuring their fields, and well, that's what we're talking about here. Yes, and so that's the first factor, and now the second factor. Second factor is the soil type. So we have now the atmosphere. What's in the atmosphere due to this situation? But now the soil type in the desert of the central Negev. Desert soils are rich in various types of salts. Salts such as sodium bicarbonate, sodium chloride, potassium sulfate. Those are a few examples. Uh, Without this specific desert soil type, you will not get manna. Yes, and the Bible records, you know, when they came to an inhabited land, they came to the border of Canaan, the manna ceased after all those many years. Right. So those are the two factors, the emissions of 
the cattle and sheep surrounding the camps and then the soil in the central Negev desert and and other deserts have similar types of soils. So manna itself was what today we call, and here's a word, efflorescence. What is efflorescence? Have you ever seen a, a brick wall where there's like this white scaly stuff that has come out onto the brick? Um, I'm sure we've all probably all seen that. You can it gets very hard many times. You can scrape it off with a tool, I guess, if you wanted to. That's that's an example of efflorescence. Uh, it's what happens when moisture-laden air soaks into a porous material. Salts are dissolved from the porous material and come to the surface. So in this mana case, and here's the science, an ion exchange reaction takes place or took place, which was vital for mana production. Stockyard air ammonium exchanged for desert soil sodium. Okay, so here's this chemistry we were saying, which right. is in the book. We're not going to dwell on chemistry today here on the podcast. Right. But there was the moisture-laden air, which fell onto the soil as dew every night, which the Bible says uh, the ground was covered with dew in the morning. Right. And then when the sun came up and evaporated the moisture, there were fine flakes all over the ground, which we know today as efflorescence. And this was a special case of efflorescence um, in what the Israelites called manna because of the unique ingredients, if you will, that they that was happening there. So what we're saying is that if we could recreate the scenario today, which would be impossible, but recreate millions and millions of people with <laughs> tens of millions of livestock in that part of the world, with that soil, recreating this exodus, we today would wake up in the morning with manna on the ground. Correct. Right. Because it's a scientific, explainable event. And Scientifically explainable when event. you take these unique circumstances and unique ingredients and understand them and replicate them in the lab, so we can do this on a small scale, you indeed get a substance that matches all the biblical properties of manna. It is even a substance that provides calories when eaten. You go to page 29 of the book and you see the table there of the properties of manna. And then you see the lab work done. You know, you got to read books about emissions from stockyard animals and you got to read books about desert soil types and you got to get into the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty of these different chemical compounds and and what was going on. And when you understand it properly, you can produce this fine flake-like substance that matches manna in every way. Manna was crystals of, for those science buffs among us, mainly sodium acetate trihydrate and sodium propionate, along with other trace substances like sodium butyrate. Right, so... Let's just do a quick summary here. So the whole big picture, you've got this, you picture this in your mind, this massive encampment, all these people in their tents and their lean-tos inside of or surrounded by this massive group of, uh, flocks of sheep and goats and herds. And circular, you know, they have yes. the tabernacle in the middle. They have right, a you can picture pillar that. of fire and cloud in the middle and then all this on the outside. 
It's also helpful to note that the manna would have been gathered on acres of land that would have run between the tent city and the uh, stockyard surrounding the camp. So on the very um, circumference of the encampment area, you have all the millions of animals going all around the outside. And then you have some open desert land that would have been manna fields every morning, right? Um, Where they would have gone out to gather. And then um, more towards the center, you have the tent city. Right. Because it's such a large amount of, not hyperbole, but reality, real world, a large group, large amount of animals, it is affecting the environment over these people. It's producing this, almost like a canopy, almost like a, right here in this area, this, this very humid, very stockyard atmosphere. Every, every night. Every night that the animals are there around the camp. And so what that does in the science and the chemistry is producing, putting these gases into the air, which during the night come down to the ground. And right along with what the Bible says, in the morning, because of this humid environment, there's this dew on the ground. Right, and the dew has soaked into the soil. There's this ion exchange happening, and the salts are brought to the surface. from the soil efflorescence. And when the sun comes out, just as the Bible describes, the dew dries up, dries into this flaky... Sub white substance that is edible by humans to produce calories. It's fascinating. I mean, this is just amazing that what we are seeing described in the Bible explained in chemistry and in science. It is fascinating. And for those who want to say it's a myth, and we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but if it's a myth, then um, explain this. Right. If, if we could recreate this today in science and say this is what happens— in the real world, in the lab, if you have those conditions, and this is exactly what the Bible is describing, again, we could keep going with this. The Bible says when the sun came out really hot, it would melt. Well, that's exactly what happens at a certain temperature. This compound melts. There's so many properties that maybe we'll save for our next podcast, um, all the fascinating facts. Yes. Because it, it just touches all the portions of the biblical account. But we got to get to two fascinating facts today because we promised this. And this is, uh, to me, some of the most uh, thrilling parts of this discovery. Um, Fascinating facts about manna. Like I said, we have about 10 of these to share, but today we're only going to share two, I think. Fact number one, why there was no manna on Sabbath nights. Yeah, explain that. I don't know if we mentioned earlier, of course, the animals were around the camp at night, but they were not around the camp all day. Uh, They had to be taken out to pasture. They had to find more areas to eat everything up. They were taken out to pasture during the day for many practical reasons and brought back in at night. Now, we know the manna did not spoil on Sabbath nights, and there was no manna produced on Sabbath nights. And so you have to ask the question, which is asked in the book, was there anything different about Sabbath nights that would have changed the conditions for the manna? Well, we just read the account a minute ago out of Exodus chapter 16, and it's very plain. One of the main themes of that account is that God's people are already, very early on, rebelling against God's command to keep 
the Sabbath. The Sabbath is huge in the Old Testament. It was something God commanded to those people on that Sabbath day, you do no work. You know, you stay in your tent. You, it's a day of rest. It's a day of honor unto the Lord. So that has everything to do with this. Yes. I'm going to read a little section here. The livestock would have been led away from the camp to graze desert vegetation each morning, return to the camp each evening, and here is the critical point, except for evenings before the Sabbath. The herds could not be taken on the Sabbath out to pasture. Uh, That would be work. That would be Sabbath breaking. There was even a man put to death by Moses for breaking the Sabbath in one of the accounts of the Israelites in the wilderness. Right. It was very serious. Uh, they could not keep the, the herds around the camp all day during the Sabbath. They wouldn't have had food. They, they have to pasture. They have to go out right. to the where the Negev vegetation would have been. That That's where the animals would have to be to be able to eat. And right. so, right, so these shepherds, these, these keepers of the flocks, you know, it makes sense that they have to figure this out. What are they going to do we During can't the break Sabbath. the Sabbath. Our our animals need food. Right. Begins at sundown on Friday, ends right. at sunset on Saturday. Right. Well, it would make sense. They're just going to keep those animals out away from the camp during that right. Sabbath. So the herds are kept out to pasture on Sabbath night. They're not brought back in and they are not in the camp on the Sabbath because of not wanting to break the the rules about working on the Sabbath, the shepherds would have gone out on Fridays, uh, told their wives, you know, I'm we're staying the night and we'll see you tomorrow evening. And they would have gone out with their flocks prepared to stay out all night. So this is why there's no stockyard atmosphere over the camp on the Sabbath night. There's no humidity that's coming. Those, those gases are not going into the air because the flocks aren't there. Right. They're out in the pasture, out in the fields. There's not going to be dew because the animals are not there providing all that water vapor into the air. Right. And so the atmosphere was different. Uh, the humidity was much lower. And manna would not have been on the ground in the morning. Right. And this also, side note, there's another passage, a very famous passage of Scripture. that says, the shepherds were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. You ever wondered why? The Christmas story. Yeah. It, well, there were in knows? the same country, shepherds <laughs> abiding in the fields, keeping this, watch over their flocks by night. Well, this could give us a very good answer as to why were they out at night? Oh, what were they my doing goodness. With the, yeah, it gives you chill bumps a little Jesus bit. Jesus would have been possibly born on a, on a Sabbath, Sabbath night. Evening. That just is an amazing thought and correlates with this to a point, but it's also another topic all of its own. But uh, what an amazing insight that could be even into the Christmas story that the flocks were only out in the fields at night on the night of the Sabbath. It is a good reminder here. And we, we keep giving this on the podcast and keep saying this, but if you have the proper Bible science mindset, Bible science method. You're taking the Bible seriously. You're taking science seriously. And you're you're going after real answers that mysteries begin to unravel. What we have here is truth. It's not a cult. We're not talking about something that somebody made up. We're not talking about fairy tales. We are talking about things that God has graciously allowed us to see in the real world, verifying, validifying the things that are found in the Bible. 
in the book at this point, Dr. Arzma says, you know, with this much figured out, the mystery rapidly begins to unravel right. because this is really the the core of it here. Now, fascinating fact number two is right why didn't the manna spoil on Sabbath nights? It spoiled every other night and they weren't allowed to collect more than they needed for that one day, except on Fridays, collect twice as much and it will not spoil overnight. And again, that's a head scratcher. You know, what's going on that it wouldn't have spoiled? Well, again, it goes back to the humid atmosphere. So we know certain food types, if you open a can of tuna and leave it on the counter, it will spoil um, within a certain amount of time. For example, under certain conditions, Uh, if you put your ice cream in the freezer, it will not spoil. If you leave it on the counter, it will. So again, the manna spoiled under the humid conditions that they had every single night, except the Sabbath. Now, um, we had some packets of manna earlier this week that you you guys can purchase and and sample for yourselves. And we had some very humid conditions here in central Illinois. In fact, we've had record-breaking heat index this past week, and the humidity was so high that one of the nights I got some manna, I put it in a little dish, and I said, well, okay, this is supposed to uh, spoil overnight. I put it in this little dish, and I put it outside, and I felt a little anxious. I thought, what is this going to do? You know, um, if this is manna, it's not going to be the same in the morning as as it was when I put it in the dish here tonight uh, because it was so humid outside, near 100% humidity as the Israelite encampments would have been. So I left it there, and we checked it the next morning, And indeed, it was not the same as it had been the night before. It had melted basically into a little puddle. So kept in containers in the Israelite tents, the manna would have basically melted down and would not have been usable the next day. If it was left on the ground, it would have melted down and soaked back into the soil and been reproduced as more manna, which is so cool. It's a recyclable product. Now, technically, it didn't actually melt down. Uh, The proper term there would be dissolved. And I believe if you read the book, you'll get all the proper scientific terms uh, coming from us, communicating this uh, to you. You may not get everything perfectly, uh, terminology perfectly right. But um, yes, overnight, it absorbed the moisture from the air. And so it basically became a puddle. Didn't melt, but it dissolved. And this is a great falsifier potential for any manna substance put forth. Will it spoil overnight in humid conditions? If it doesn't, then it's not the biblical manna. So um, now we didn't get any smell coming from our spoiled manna the next morning. And the reason for that is because we are not in stockyard uh, conditions, stockyard air, where you would have had different vapors and gases that would have drawn out the acidic smells out of that spoiled manna. So, but we did definitely have unusable manna the next morning. And so I'm sure people are asking, where did you get your manna? Well, Dr. Arzma is able to produce this, um, to make this. It's it's a recipe. There's a recipe for manna in the book. If you want to uh, make it, you can follow the recipe there. Of course, I'm not sure how easy it is to obtain some of these different ingredients. But uh, yes, so it did not spoil on Sabbath nights because the air was not humid and it was right. able to be left out. I think we've got a pack of manna here with us that we Should thought, we do a taste test? We might do a taste test on the podcast. 
Now, next month, we're going to get into some of the more nitty gritty of what did it taste like? What did it look like? And how does this match biblically, yeah, which but, you can read in the book in the meantime for yourself. Yeah. But yes, let's let's open our pack of mana here. And I have think a this is taste. good because we want you to understand when we first saw the mana for the first time, just to be totally honest with you, there's a little bit of a disappointment in the realization of what we're holding in our hands and what we're tasting. Because, you know, we have all these ideas, of course. We have these ideas since childhood of what manna was, of, of what this must have been like. The reality of it, and we are finding this out in a lot of ways, that the reality of things are sometimes harder, sometimes harder to handle and grasp and understand than we first maybe would have ever thought. Um, manna is that way too. We are not talking about a bread. We're not talking about angel food. We're not talking, as we open this pack and as we hold some of this in our hands even right now on this podcast, we are talking about a substance that will remind you and me today of salt. And you know, Dr. Ardsma reminded us that the text itself, especially there in uh, Numbers chapter 11, does not encourage a romantic view of this substance at all. Um, when you look at what the people are saying, I mean, it says in Numbers chapter 11, it's talking about the rabble who were among them, the greedy ones, but but yet the idea is that they're dreaming about this tasty food that they left behind in Egypt, and and they describe it in, in, in contrast to this manna. Again, when you hold this in your hand, it's it's grainy, it's flaky, it can be. It's Just also like the, a little bit sparkly there in my hand. It catches the light to a point. Yep. Does look like hoar frost. Sure. Fine frost on the ground. Um, and we'll talk more how they would have gathered it and all of that. Right. But um, to taste it. So I've got yeah. it in my hand. It, it does kind of look a little bit snowy or So I'm going to get a little frosty. bit of it on my finger here and put it in my mouth. And it's amazing. What are you tasting? I'm tasting. The Bible describes it as, what, what are the words? I don't have it in front of me. Oil. Cakes baked with oil. Cakes baked with oil. Definitely, you can taste that in this substance. The disappointing part of it is it's quite salty. This is a very, and that makes total sense because it's sodium. But when you taste just a little bit, um, which probably the Israelites would have done, not knowing what this was on the ground, so they stuck their finger in it real, real lightly just to get a taste. I'm a saltaholic. I love the flavor. I, I really do. I like this. It's a vinegary. Um, flavor to it. But you can see how the Bible says they took it and they would grind it in the mortar. They would bake it in their breads. They would boil it in the pot. What is this doing? It is providing them calories. Um, There's a sweetness to it. Yeah, there when is. you taste it. Very interesting. Sweet and salty. Very interesting. Wafers with honey, cakes baked with oil is how the Bible describes it. And it leaves an oily aftertaste in your <laughs> mouth. Does. Now, they yeah. were not eating um, this by the spoonful or the handful. No. They were making things with it. They used it as ingredients. You come to that realization when you see it in your hand. This is this is an ingredient. This is something that was put in, not a food necessarily by itself. They could have eaten it by itself if they had to. But this is providing calories as an ingredient in the wilderness. I've thought of this numerous times. God never intended for these people to eat this for 40 years. Remember, remember they, they were not supposed to be in the wilderness 
all that long before they were brought into the land flowing with milk and honey, into the promised land. But because of their disobedience, they ended up eating this stuff for a long time. Yeah, and there's there's a lot to, that goes along with that. But I think for today, we have definitely covered a lot of territory. And as we sit here and look at this uh, manna in our hand and think about everything that we've discussed today, it's it's incredible that we would be able to find out the science behind this miraculous provision. We've talked before on the podcast. There's, a, you know, the line between the miraculous, the natural, and the supernatural is, is a fuzzy line because God is over all of it. Right. And only God could have masterminded such a plan that would sustain his people in the wilderness. These were principles he built in creation from the dawn of time that would come into play uh, when these people needed to be sustained. So many more fascinating facts are coming up right. on our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, get the book, get your sample packet or packets of manna. Right, let's talk about that for a second. You can get this if you would like some of it. What we're doing right now, we're keeping it simple. You can get the book and a sampling of the manna the regular price is $49.99, and right now for the next seven days, we are offering it for $39.99. Yeah, so the sale is going to end when the uh, midnight, I guess, on Friday, September the 8th right. is the end of the sale. Sale price of $39.99 for these two brand new unique products. On the packet of mana, you will notice... Um, the byline there says, history held in your hand. And that's what it is, a piece of ancient history coming to your doorstep. Go to the show notes. You can see it there. There's a link for you to go to the page where you can order this uh, through PayPal and use your credit card. Let me mention this. The research here is research, and research isn't cheap. Research takes money. And so you, you can know that when you purchase this, you are also helping us be able here to continue uh, to do this research and continue to put the word out about these amazing discoveries um, that Dr. Arzma has been blessed to be able to, to find. And yes, so, every purchase you make right. uh, puts in your hand cutting-edge <clears throat> research, brand-new discoveries, and helps to move forward the work here, this unique Bible science ministry. So let's wrap this up. No— the numbers given to us in these stories are not hyperbole. This is real. These stories are real world. This was not a handful of people who found some bugs in the desert and no. ate the secretions. And it's also not some kind of mystical, you know, God could do anything he wants. God could make bread fall out of heaven, just as we thought in the past, maybe. Uh, but this is real world. And no fictional story could ever be borne out in the real world world like this. No fictional story could ever be explained in science and in chemistry like this. Bible believers have been faced with some tough questions in recent decades, no doubt about it. That's part of the reason why we're here. Right. But now the tables are turning. It's time for unbelievers to answer some very tough questions. You want answers? We have some answers. Those who still want to claim that the Exodus account is mythological, are going to have to reckon with these facts and the scientific principles that we are presenting here 
about manna. And this is just one piece of the puzzle. We are talking about all kinds of puzzles that are unraveling here at Arsenal Research and Publishing, the Biblical Chronologist, and here on our BC Messenger podcast. Things that seem very mysterious. There are explanations, and God graciously allows us to search these things out and understand and stand in awe of the creation that he has made. Yes. And right along with that, we will conclude our MANA discussion um, for today and move into a quick research update. Dr. Ardsma has just uh, released recently uh, a new article called Understanding the Red or Reed Sea Crossing. It's a, an article showing the location of the Red Sea Crossing and showing how it gives us a great deal of insight into the biblical account when we see it properly. Through amazing tools today that we have, such as Google Maps, we can see with our own eyes, how this miraculous account happened in the real world. What is meant by the waters being a wall to the Israelites? There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to get a hold of this and read it for yourself. It's back, it was written in July, July the 11th. July the 11th. And we don't have enough time on our once month podcast to give you all the details of all the new research. And so right. we just give you a quick update here and you can go read it for yourself. We'll probably get into this topic more in a future podcast, but we want to just get the word out that this article is there. If you'd like to read it, there's a lot of articles on that website, um, a lot of information, and we just hope that you'll dive in and take advantage of these things. Here's our next section on our podcast. We're calling In the News, In the News, Movie-Themed Church Services. Some churches devoted multiple weeks of this past summer to a sermon series featuring popular movies. Um, In these sermons, the pastors were drawing lessons and application from a movie's character or plotline, matching those lessons up with Scripture along the way. Some of the movies that we saw being featured at some of these churches were Star Wars, Toy Story, Top Gun Maverick. So what does this trend, this is the question we're asking on the podcast today. We're here presenting real world, real science, real Bible, real history. What does this trend indicate about the current state of evangelical Christianity? It seems to be showing somewhat of a, a deep and troubling problem with the Christian apologetic today. Uh, We are seeing here a connection, either blatant or somewhat subliminal, pretty blatant, I would say, a connection between Christianity and the Bible and fairy tales. One of these churches said, you know, movies speak to our circumstances and connect us to one another, but there's so much more we can learn from them. And that's what the series at the movies is all about. We'll watch scenes from powerful movies during church, and then the pastor is going to use them to teach us more about God and ourselves and the life that's possible for us. Decorating the lobbies and just providing a movie experience for people as they came into church. I watched part of a service where it was the Toy Story Day for the movie series, and the pastor and wife were dressed up as Woody and Bo Peep from Toy Story, which I do love that movie. Mm. Um, It's a great little movie. They were on the stage there talking to the congregation, dressed up in these costumes, 
And they said, this weekend, we're going to be looking a little bit deeper at the story of Toy Story. Uh, The message is going to be all about the themes of Toy Story. We're going to look at it through the lens of the Bible. We're going to focus on three of the characters and learn a lesson from each of them. And you know, Steve, then they introduced the service this way, and then the worship team began to lead music, and they were singing songs about, this is the God we know. Your ways are holy. You brought life to dead, dry bones, slayed Goliath with just a stone, broke the walls of Jericho. This is the God we know. He has overcome the grave. He is alive today, right on the heels of Toy Story. And we're not criticizing illustrations. We're not criticizing, sure, Jesus taught by parables. We, we understand that. That's not the point. Our point is, where are we as a culture? Right. Where are we as the church of Christ in the world today, and how did we get here to this point? We are supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ gathering together before the throne of God. Really, I see church worship, a church gathering together as warfare um, against the, 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 the workers of iniquity and, and against our own sin, and coming together before God's throne, not before Woody and Bo Peep, not talking about Tom Cruise in his movie Top Gun. Things Uh, that are obviously fictional, a great story, but no connection to the real world. And then on top of this, so we had seen this trend happening in the news with these churches. We were driving down um, our local city street one evening and saw a lit up church sign that said, the gospel according to Winnie the Pooh. And I believe this was the name of their sermon for the coming Sunday. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt. presentation. Winnie the Pooh I'm, is pretty far removed I'm, from anything factual and real world. It's a great little endearing story. But this is the problem. Is the Bible just great little endearing stories that will warm our hearts and teach us a lesson? Or are we talking about the true and living God? Right. Who is working today in the world the same as he did in the days of manna, in the days of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. He's to be feared. And this is what we're learning. You know, this God is working his plan. He's writing his story in this world, and we bow before him. We stand in awe of him. We've lost this in our culture. Yes. We. How can we, we talk about Toy Story 4 one minute, sing <clears throat> about David and Goliath the next, have lessons from Woody and Forky, and then interweave that with the writings of the great apostle Paul speaking to the real first century church, trying to figure out Christianity in the real world. And what does this do in the minds of our children? We really need to separate, you know, King David from Spider-Man. I mean, yes, we do. One is real and one is not. One is fairy tale and one is not. And I'm afraid we have come to a point in our society where we don't really see the Bible in the real world anymore. No. It's it's been it's been demonstrated to us for a long time now that it's a bunch of fairy tales as well, but there's good moral principles behind it. So we can tell the story of Jericho right alongside the story of Star Wars and still get the same lessons, moral lessons, teach No, no, there's something different here. I'm sorry, I'm starting to preach. Well, this is our this is the heartbeat of our passion right? of why we're here, why we're behind these microphones, because God has given us this mission of right. 
showing the historicity of his works in history. The need of the human soul is the same today as it was when David wrote, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The God that gives us things that we can touch, feel, see, not just know in our heart, although that is part of it, but we need to know that he's walking with us today. He's at work with us. uh, He's at home with us. He is providing our needs. He is making a way for us, just like he really did in the true history of our past. And this is the kind of thing we need behind our pulpits. It is unhelpful to have the underlying message from the pulpit uh, that we don't really know if these accounts are true, and it probably doesn't matter if they're true. Instead, we're just going to talk about stories and lessons. It is true. God is real. He is to be feared. He loves us, but he's a God that is to be feared, and he has provided a way of salvation for us who are sinful people in desperate need of a Savior, repenting of our sins. This God has offered salvation freely. It's very true. It's very real. It's very wonderful, but relegating it to the likes of Woody on Toy Story is a shame. And we need to get back to an understanding and a God-fearing awe. And a focus on knowing God. Right. Um, Even us with the the manna and and learning about the real-world aspect helps us to know God in a deeper way and realize more of how he has worked, not focusing on who am I, who am I like? Am I like Forky? Am I like Woody? Am I like Bo Peep? No. um, What is God like? And what does that tell me about where I am in my life today? And as a nation, we need to repent. We don't need to be feeling good about ourselves. We've got a lot to repent of, and we're standing before the same God who drowned the Pharaoh in the Red Reed Sea. We can see it right in front of us on Google Maps how he did it. We're standing before the same God who told those Israelites, no, you're not going to go into that promised land. You're going to do exactly what you said, and your carcass is going to fall in this wilderness in 40 years. We're standing for the same God. He hasn't changed a bit, and we need to have this message of repentance and and bowing before him and standing in awe of him and worshiping him in our church services and in our families and homes. He's a true and living God, not a fairy tale God. Amen. All right, we need to get into our next section here on Aging 101. Okay, Aging 101 class is not in session for a few months here because we are awaiting the third edition of the book Aging, Cause, and Cure, which is going to provide some updates to the theory of aging, uh, which we've been talking about. But in the meantime, we uh, do have some recent comments, testimonials about the vitamins because the vitamins themselves have not changed at all. It's just some of the theory of aging in the body. We have received on social media, uh, which is kind of a fun place to get comments from people. Uh, and we are growing on our Facebook for Dr. Artsman's Vitamins and Instagram. would love to have you join us there and follow along with some of the chit chat that happens and the different posts that are put up. Here's a guy who shared on Facebook. You have helped me. A year ago, I could barely walk up the stairs or get up from the couch because of a torn meniscus in my knees, diagnosed by an orthopedic surgeon after having an MRI on them. I have done nothing except take the anti-aging vitamins. In one year, I feel like I have new knees. 
Zero pain now, and I can run upstairs. It's amazing. Steve also has experienced a lot of relief in knee pain that he had going back many years. Uh, He doesn't ever complain about it anymore. That's a wonderful testimony from this fella. And then, oh, he says, and to think, I was just days away from spending thousands of dollars on knee surgery to repair the knees when I decided to cancel the surgery because of scheduling issues. So thankful for these vitamins. Yeah, that's good. And here's one from Jane. Jane says, I shared them with a teacher at our Christian school with painful arthritis in her hands. I'm about to turn 70 in October, and I haven't had to color my hair, Jane says. It seems these vitamins add more curl to my hair as well. So yeah, we were very pleased by the response to the sale that we had uh, on our last episode. Yeah, we had the buy one, get one free. And you know, Jane saying she shared them with somebody. And we had a lot of folks during that sale who were saying, I'm going to get a bunch of bottles because I want to give them to some folks in my family and right. and all this. And if you're new to the podcast, uh, please understand the same Bible science research method that led to the discovery of the manna in the real world is what has brought to light the discovery of these two previously unknown vitamins. It's Bible science uh, all the way around, and that's why it's here on the podcast. All right, we're going to go into Helen's view. Helen gives us a behind-the-scenes view every month, and this month she's talking specifically about the building, the uh, facility that God has provided for Arsma Research and Publishing and some work that's been on that. So here is this month's Helen's view. The old Loda grade school, now Arsma Research and Publishing, was built in 1923, making it 100 years old this year. When we bought the school in July of 2019, The first thing we did was get all of the water out of the basement to secure the foundation. The basement was under about a foot of water. The second thing we did was to begin the long and expensive task of redoing the roof. The roof was leaking in quite a few places, so this was an urgent project. There is no point in putting up new drywall if you have leaking roofs. We have eight different sections of roof five peak sections at the front, 5,800 square feet, one large barrel roof section, 6,500 square feet, at the back running down the middle, and two flat roof sections on either side of the barrel roof, 6,500 square feet. We broke this project down over several summers due to the large expense. We had our son-in-law, Steve Hall, help us with the color scheme, and we decided on an off-white cream for the trim and a gray slate for the peaked metal roofs. Part of our goal with the roof project was to convert away from the old-school look towards a more industrial business look. We had two different companies do the work, one for the back sections and one for the front peak sections. For the back barrel dome and flat sections, we had a company spray polyurethane foam. The east flat roof was done the first year, the west flat roof the second year, and finally the barrel roof the third year, all starting in the summer of 2020. It had been spray foamed many years ago, and it was definitely due for some serious repairs. I love the way it turned out. When looking at the barrel roof from a distance, it looks like it just had a fresh snowfall. Before the roofers could come and do the metal roofing on the peaked roof sections, Caleb and Gerald had to work on getting all of the drains for the new downspouts that would be installed by roofers functioning. This was a big, nasty project as many of the drains were plugged up with dirt and some of the old underground clay pipes were busted. 
and to make matters worse, 40 feet of the plug drains ran under the concrete floor of the building. We completed the drain project just a day before the roofers started. For the front peak sections, only the part that shows from the street, we had a company come and put on a metal ridged roof. They started in early April of this year. First, the old asphalt tile roof was ripped off and then a new metal roof was put on. It sounds simple in that one sentence, but this was weeks of work. Downspouts were replaced and connected to the newly repaired drains. We have had drought here this spring, and finally last week we got some rain. Gerald was thrilled to see all the drains were working well. I learned all about soffits, standing seams, underlayments, pipe boots, and fascias. It was amazing to watch these guys up on the very high roof. I was so thankful that Gerald did not have to do this project. The metal roof project was completed in early July of this year, and so the 100-year-old school has a new roof, a new look, and a new life. We are so grateful to God for this amazing large facility that meets so many of our growing business needs. It's always a joy to talk to you every month, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Many blessings. Helen. All right, let's wrap this up today. We want to thank those of you who filled out our survey last month. We certainly greatly appreciate your feedback. That helps us uh, here on the podcast to know about future podcasts and how to work this thing right. And uh, we were able to give some gift cards away for that, and that was really neat. So, yeah, we do appreciate that. And I wanted to close today with a comment from one listener that left this on the survey for us. Um, It's always so fun to hear from those who are on the receiving end of the podcast. Uh, This person said, I enjoy listening and learning about the topics you present. Most news today is depressing and frightening. Yours is refreshing and informative on biblical topics. I always like to hear new information about the Bible and the new vitamins. An added plus is that you both get along so well during the discussion (laughs) that it is pleasant to listen to. The added extras by the other members of the family is a bonus. And I'm glad she thinks we get along so well. 99.9% of the time, we do. We do. And if we don't, you won't hear it on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never know that. All right. Well, we hope that you'll order the book and the manna if you would like to get a hold of some of that. And Jen, there was another way that uh, folks could help support the work, something we were going to mention today on the podcast. Oh, yes. Another way that you can help to support the Bible Science Research Ministry going on here at the Biblical Chronologist and Arzma Research and Publishing is by visiting mulberrylanefarm.com. This is Mrs. Ardsma, Mrs. Helen Ardsma, my mom. Uh, this is her part of the work here where she ships out organic grains and different uh, supplies. You can go to the website, mulberrylanefarm.com. You can order anything from lentil products to popcorn kernels to um, rye products, wheat products, packaged there for you by Mulberry Lane Farm and shipped straight to your door, all organic and healthy for you and your family. We hope you'll check into it. Till next month, let's serve the Lord of history joyfully and faithfully every day, standing in awe of him, knowing that the Lord of history is the Lord of today. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next month.